Welcome to City Road, I'm Dallas Rogers, and today, Kate Murray from the Connected Cities Lab at the University of Melbourne is taking charge of the City Road Studios. Hi, my name is Kate Murray, and I am happy to be guest host on this episode of City Road Podcast. Tonight, I am talking to Professor Michele Acuto from the Connected Cities Lab at the University of Melbourne, where I also work. And we are chatting about nighttime urban governance. So, let's step into the night together. Okay, let's start on the, at the back of the garbage truck. Uh, and I guess that's, that's the story of how I got to the nighttime and cities and after dark. Um, that was uh, a few years ago. At this point, it's a good decade ago. I was doing a project on the politics of waste and the connections of waste and garbage in cities. And it's pretty much unavoidable if you're doing a bit of ethnography of that to spend a bit of time with the people picking up the trash and the waste and clearing the streets. Um, and that got me around at nighttime. It got me around at nighttime in Sydney, got me around at nighttime in London. And we're talking deep into nighttime or almost in the early hours of the day. And you really see a very different city and a very different take on urbanism, on urban issues and urban life. Uh, that perhaps you catch in your daytime jobs, in your daytime view, or even just your daytime routines. And there's this whole cohort of people who live more at night than they do during the day. Um, garbage collectors, as you said, and shift workers, hospitality workers. So what scene did you see? What did you find out about this urban nocturnal population from the back of your truck? Yeah, I think it's a great place to start because there is quite a lot of talk about the nighttime and I guess what you could call the nighttime economy. Uh, it's an expression sort of people have been using at least since the 80s. Uh, um, it predominantly comes from sort of Western um, and Anglophone countries. Uh, but very often that story has been told, uh, justifiably so I suppose, uh, around the idea of the entertainment sector, um, the cultural activities, uh, so the restaurant goers and the bars goers and so and all the activities that stand behind that, which is very important, but we oftentimes don't quite grasp the vastness and sort of the complexity of the nighttime economy, meaning the hundreds of thousands of shift workers and the hundreds of thousands of people and activities that continue at nighttime and in a sense that keep our cities flowing and going. So I'm really glad, for instance, that you, you refer to shift workers. Even just in Australia, there's 204,000 night shift workers. Um, so that we, when we try and understand the complexity of the, I guess, the nighttime economy, we're talking about um, 9% or nearly one out of 10 people in Australia employed at nighttime. And we're talking about not just the, the restaurateurs and the restaurant goers, not just the club owners and the club goers, but we are very much talking about uh, my friends uh, uh, taking me around on a garbage truck uh, at 3 a.m. in Sydney, colleagues and friends uh, and people and migrant workers uh, um, working in maintenance. And I guess quite strikingly, for instance, when 
the UK tried to grapple with this, when London tried to grapple with this a few years back, very strikingly, what came out was that the hundreds of thousands of nighttime workers weren't just the club goers and the club owners, but in fact, nurses and logistics workers that kept London going. And that's really a story that, that applies to Melbourne, that applies to Cape Town, that applies to a middle small sized city in the middle of nowhere in Italy where I come from. So we've got this nocturnal population of the city who are doing their activities in the evening outside of, as you said, entertainment, which is what most of us day dwellers would <laughs> think of first. But when I go to work, I drop my kids off at childcare. I catch the train into the city. There's cafes open in case I've forgotten breakfast or if I just need another coffee often. <laughs> there are all these services in place to help me get to work, help me do a good job and be functioning and be fed. You know, what are the experiences of the city and of those support networks, the ones we don't even think about, what are they like for these workers? I think one of the key things is that we're probably used to thinking and we have probably designed and planned our cities predominantly for the daytime and in a sense with a bit of a daytime bias. Um, so for instance, it, it, there's really tangible studies uh, in health sciences that say uh, if 20% um, of the population in urban economies uh, uh, tends to work outside a normal sort of eight to five uh, job, exactly as you've just described it, exactly as you and I typically do, um, there's a wealth of uh, health uh, and well-being issues that go with that. Uh, not just questions about uh, uh, sleepiness, uh, but questions about uh, some fundamental chronic diseases and implications on chronic diseases of nighttime shifts uh, and the imbalance of nighttime work and nighttime life on what you call the circadian rhythms, so sort of the master biological clock within our bodies. And that's fundamentally impacted by, in a sense, this reverse life that a night shift worker lives. If you take it from that perspective, I think one of the key things is that it isn't just about the economy, but it is very much about urban life at nighttime as well. It brings up fundamental questions, for instance, uh, that had been debated for quite some time in some places like London and Tokyo as to whether, for instance, there should be a nighttime minimum wage and some uh, capacity to recognize the conditions that people suffer at nighttime. So in a sense, it brings up many fundamental questions that urbanists are really used to, but it casts them, I guess, pardon the pun, in a very different light or very different shadows in a sense. And we typically don't discuss this in most of our commonplace conversations about the future of cities and the current state of cities and the trajectory of urban issues. Some cities are tackling this with things like putting in place nightmares Wait, that doesn't sound right when I say it. <laughs> Night space mayors, <laughs> you know, putting in some urban planning around the nighttime specifically. What kind of methods are they putting in place that you're seeing to deal with those kind of issues? 
And it is hard to think of nightmares and give yourself a pose not to make it a pun. Um, but uh, it is, as colleagues, uh, for, inter- for instance, Andreina Sejas um, at Harvard uh, uh, and Mirek Milan, sort of the former uh, nightmare uh, of Amsterdam, they've done a great study recently uh, pointing out that there's at least 50 cities, but there probably is more that have some form of formalized nighttime manager or mayor, uh, London calls it a czar, Manchester calls it uh, a nighttime economy advisor, um, Toronto has a nighttime ambassador, and many places have, for instance, nightlife uh, or nighttime economy alliances as well. So I guess what I'm trying to gesture there too is there is and there has been in the last uh, at least decade, probably two, a clear movement towards formalizing the governance uh, and to say in easier words, the ways in which we decide and plan for the nighttime in cities. And you see all sorts of things. Um, you see all sorts of things, obviously, in Europe and North America with lots of um, innovations around, for instance, cities having an office of the nightlife, um, something that New York uh, or Washington have. Uh, cities like London putting in place plans uh, to account for different activities that happen at nighttime or to recognize special areas, in particular areas where most of the activities takes place. But there's there's many, many, many other sort of uh, approaches that has been tried and tested to it. Uh, I think the interesting thing in that is that this whole movement still predominantly sits around the consumption of the nighttime and uh, the entertainment and, and cultural sector, and justifiably so but has uh, in very few cases expanded beyond that to, for instance, account for businesses and logistics and maintenance uh, and the healthcare sector that form an even larger economy behind it. An example of that is, for instance, we used to have uh, in Melbourne a 24-hour plan that was trying to think of uh, the city, not just at day and night, but in its continuation of activities, and in that way, it was able to account for not just the, the nighttime economy or safety, but also continuing activities that were being performed at day and nighttime. And a really tangible example of that is the construction industry and how many, many, many things are built and maintained at nighttime precisely because there's a lack of, I guess, mundane user activity and you can open up a a site, you can block a railway passage uh, or a road uh, or do routine maintenance across a building. So another thing I was thinking about, and I think it might have been in Amsterdam where they were talking about using spaces for multiple purposes, spaces having a day purpose and a night purpose. So for example, an office space during the day might turn into a cafe and a childcare center at night for night workers. But when we think about that 24-hour cycle as well, I guess it's interesting because since digital connectivity has increased, so many things have been 24 hours. So many things have been global. I've done collaborations between New York and Melbourne where we will edit a project during our day and then hand over to them and they'll edit while we sleep and then hand it back. And we can turn work around in 24 hours in a way that we couldn't just with our own Australian daytime hours. And I've known co-working spaces, for example, to be open 24 hours for people to do work in their off time. Gyms are the same. 
A lot of people going to gyms at night. I don't know why, but okay. So what about that side of 24-hourness? Not just people who are physically out at night, but the connectivity and those multiple spaces creating kind of a world for work at night, work that we usually would associate with daytime. What comes to mind immediately is a very aptly titled 24-7 book by Jonathan Crary that teaches at Columbia that actually criticizes that and says uh, the the current life, uh, not just in cities, but in society more in general, has been, in a sense, further and further and further colonized by the way of production and consumption that sits underneath our basic economy. And the nightlife, uh, same thing uh, that the colleagues at Newcastle, uh, uh, Rob Shaw, for instance, talk about, have been colonized in a sense. It, it was a frontier. It was a space uh, a bit out of the ordinary. And it's progressively become a 24-7 world and a 24-7 city because of the capacity to work in a globalized context, but also because of the uh, proliferation of profitable or convenient nighttime activities. So I've said a number of times that one of the best uh, companies in thinking about the nighttime, both in their communication strategies as much as in their real estate strategy, is, is most definitely McDonald's with its 30 billion real estate business. And it is very much the creation of this possibility of the nighttime being a space for activity, which, uh, which comes quite recently in, I guess, and the history of humanity, courtesy of the capacity to generate and and control light, and courtesy of the capacity, as as you were speaking, um, to rely on global or more than local telecommunications. So in a sense, there there's this criticized element of the night progressively disappearing, if it ever was, and if it ever was uh, a sort of in modern time, not just a, a continuation of the day. Yeah, it's interesting. I remember reading about from the University of Melbourne about the effects on lighting on urban wildlife, for example, and this idea of better lighting for humans, making it safer and an easier place to live, but then that being more and more disruptive for nocturnal wildlife, which in Australia we have quite a lot of. And so catering to our fauna and not just our human but then who, who's the nighttime animal mayor? <laughs> hmm, abso- absolutely. Absolutely. But hey, that's uh, uh, just a quote from uh, our colleague, Teresa Jones at, at Melbourne Uni as well, uh, and Tim Edenser, who's done a lot, a lot of work on na- dark and lightness. Uh, the, the idea of it being just a human matter is, is very, I guess, the... Uh, the, the expression there is anthropocentric, whereby in reality the city is uh, colonizing and the nighttime is colonizing the space uh, where animals live and the uh, humongous impact on bats and, and insects uh, and nocturnal animals and diurnal animals in a sense as well. It really is, and there's very tangible science, a very solid science that says we are swaying fundamentally uh, species and the evolutionary potential of species. Uh, and it certainly isn't often thought once something that always very often falls off of the, the planning circle and the planning imaginary is, for instance, 
appropriate levels of lighting that are appropriate for humans as much as for non-humans uh, or even further uh, questions of sounds and nighttime sounds and uh, and I guess the engineering of sounds at night uh, which is already poorly thought many times uh, uh, in terms of quality and well-being for humans uh, uh, let alone for the animals uh, or uh, very often for the plants uh, themselves uh, and the impact of a of bright lighting for that. You're on City Road on 2SCR, 107.3 FM in Sydney. I'm Dallas Rogers. And today, Kate Murray from the Connected Cities Lab at the University of Melbourne is taking us on a journey through the night time. And coming up, we talk about how we can change the functions of different parts of the city to suit different time periods during the day and night. I think one key thing there is that's actually where the idea of what's been called temporal zoning, the idea that you can plan a place uh, uh, and that place changes function during the, the time of the day and the condition, comes very much from that work uh, on animals in saying perhaps we can plan our cities better to give it time, not just for people at night and activities at night, uh, but also animals and plants at night. What I want to know is what interests you in this? What is it about this area that holds your interest? And I suppose what would be the thing that you would most like to impart to people around this concept of urban and night? I think the two things that, that remains as at the heart of my interest uh, are the question of the nuance that we need to, when we think about the nighttime, the nighttime, first of all, is not a thing, it's many things. Um, and I'll get to that in a second. But obviously, none of this makes a lot of sense for a planner, for a designer, for a political scientist of cities, uh, if we don't attend to the vulnerabilities, as I was speaking before, in terms of night shifts, uh, and the inequalities um, that go with the nighttime and the risk to people, the security to people uh, at nighttime. Uh, and I guess, Starting very briefly with the former, I think understanding that there isn't just day and night and there's many different experiences of the nighttime and very different economies of the nighttime and very different cities that happens in the same place in a sense at nighttime is crucial. So for instance, very tangibly, there's many different ways that workers do nighttime shifts and there's many different ways in which people move about at nighttime and herald the, the success of nighttime economy planning has been the idea of 24-hour uh, metro systems or trams. We have one in Melbourne and these typically have been again uh, weekend activity or limited days activity and colleagues uh, at University College London, for instance, so Jenny MacArthur, Emilia Smeds, uh, Enora Roban, have proven, for instance, very clearly that uh, this in London doesn't service appropriately the nurses uh, and logistic workers uh, that have to get from A to B. They still have to get on a bus. Uh, nighttime buses are much more effective. And Coming out of that, obviously for me, that's that's the vulnerability and inequality dimension. And I very often refer to the number in, in, in London because it's striking, but I guess there's, there's bigger numbers around the world. But 8,000, more than 8,500 people slept rough last year in the streets of London. It has been a 140% increase over the last decade. 
2% of the world's population is perhaps homeless, in a homelessness situation at least. So first, first and foremost, there are massive vulnerabilities to people and security of people. Uh, there's a really different reality for a woman walking alone in a metropolis uh, than it is for a group of men. And so goes with questions of LGBTQI rights uh, and capacity to go about at nighttime as well. Yes, definitely. I can agree with that. So on a personal note, I grew up in an interesting area of Melbourne where we were in an Orthodox Jewish area that was also the red light district right next door to each other. So the nighttime was very populated in my neighborhood. We had such a fascinating mix because you would have these families walking around at night, little kids, mums, dads, grandmas, grandpas, which really made it quite a safe neighborhood in many ways. And we also had all these people who did their work at night, sex workers and entertainers and the like. For me, that was normal. (laughs) Of course, I moved out of (laughs) home eventually. And it's really interesting because in so many other places that I've lived, the nighttime is only for some people. It's not for families. It's not for everyone. You know, in that sense, do we see that kind of inequality of who is allowed to operate at night and who is a part of that nighttime economy? So, you know, who is allowed access to this nighttime life and who is excluded? Yeah, I think there's two interesting things actually there because it's the both sides of the coin. There is the their tangible reality that when you expand your understanding of the nighttime economy to uh, the service workers and the, the the maintenance workers and the health workers, uh, very, very graspably, you understand in many, many cities uh, that is migrants. Uh, and in most cities, uh, it is low wage uh, workers, whether they're migrants or not. Uh, so first and foremost, you both have superimposed, I guess, sort of uh, uh, cultural uh, uh, cultural troubles and stigmas and problems, uh, along with gender uh, troubles and so- socioeconomic status uh, risks uh, that go with that. So first and foremost, you have, you have that element very clearly and very tangibly, right in your face. You just it simply have to step out of your campus, office, uh, home uh, or bar and take a look at, I guess, the more mundane elements of the nighttime economy. But on the other hand, the flip side of that, your story is very pertinent because in a sense, we have thought a lot about the nighttime or at least written a lot about the nighttime from predominantly Western and Anglo-Saxon perspectives. Uh, It's really encouraging to see more coming out of Latin America, for instance, at the moment, Uh, but we don't attend enough to the stories and the learnings uh, that come not from London and the UK and North America, not to say those are not important, but I guess the experiences, for instance, of places as in East Asia, where there's been a a long tradition of nighttime markets, for instance, where uh, the idea of a, a woman going out and shopping and purchasing things at nighttime is a very different sort of context uh, um, from, say, uh, suburban London. And equally, that there's a large percentage of the world's population that routinely every year, as for instance in Arabic cultures, lives partly in a very communal way at night, as for instance it happens during Ramadan in many, many places around the planet. So in a sense, perhaps we sort of need to broaden our imagination of the economy, of the people that work at night, 
and of the kinds of experiences that there are of the nighttime beyond the ones that we've repeated many, many, many times. The inevitable question I have to ask, because you and I are recording this, we're both in our, we're not in the same room, we're in our own homes. We haven't seen each other in months, even though we work together. I guess COVID and cities. It's hard, it's hard to talk about the nighttime uh, and the future of the nighttime uh, and nighttime thinking in cities and ignore that most of us are now locked inside at nighttime. I think, I think what's, what's useful to think about in that context is, first of all, that taking the broader view of what the nighttime economy is. Truth is, most of us are locked in, but those that can afford to be locked in. And in fact, perhaps this has made many nighttime workers even more essential to the city because they, they are still uh, perhaps not keeping up in construction sites, but still working in the healthcare sector, still working in waste management. And if anything, it's put even more people out there doing deliveries uh, and sprawled a sort of a whole additional size of the economy of, uh, of uh, uh, I guess, delivery services and food services that didn't exist before. Um, so it's hard to ignore that. And I guess the nighttime economy, people don't want to be ignored. So there's, uh, I was referring to the former nightmare of Amsterdam, him and many other nightmares have gotten together and they're trying to do a global recovery plan for the nighttime economy because artists and venues uh, and restaurateurs uh, have been perhaps some of the hardest hit at nighttime. And quite tangibly, uh, the, 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 the amount of capacity to operate, even going back to a new normal, it, it will be very hard to reactivate some parts of the nighttime economy if you can only afford having 30% of people in your bar or club or restaurant. And is it even worth restarting? So I guess in a sense, yes, this is a fundamental moment for the continuation of the nighttime economy. But it's also a great moment to acknowledge the nighttime workers and their value. our conversation here tonight has inspired just such an investment in our nighttime workers um, in their well-being not just their efficiency thank you so much for chatting with me McKelly it has been enlightening well thank you for having me and have a good night You've been listening to City Road on 2SCR, 107.3 FM in Sydney. I'm Dallas Rogers, and today's episode was guest edited by Kate Murray from the Connected Cities Lab at the University of Melbourne. It was so good to have Kate along. That's all for today. See you next time. Bye-bye.